Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. I'm back from my vacation. I was in New York in Provincetown and I'm super excited for a whole new slate of lunch therapy patients uh, and sessions to share with you. My first patient back is Tara O'Brady, who's the author of the cookbook Seven Spoons, which was based on her food blog, Seven Spoons. And the book came out in 2015 and it's a gorgeous cookbook and she does all the photography herself. She's also a food journalist who's written for Epicurious, Savour, Kinfolk, Jamie Oliver, and Bon Appetit. In today's session, we talk all about making lunch for herself. Usually we have very communal meals, but because our schedules, even though we're all in one house, aren't matching up as much. So I can actually do something that is absolutely selfish, completely for me. Her ideal breakfast sandwich. I want an olive oil fried egg. I want a cheese like Manchego or like Comte or something from Jura. And encountering systematic racism after publishing her first book. But people were asking me questions like the circumstances with which my parents came um, to the country. And I was thinking other people who are writing books that have nothing, that are talking about contemporary cuisine aren't being asked these questions. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Tara O'Brady. All right, here we go. Well, Tara, thank you so much for coming to do lunch therapy. I'm so excited about doing this. Thank you so much for having me, for fitting me into your therapy schedule. Oh, yes, of course. Well, <laughs> I would always make room for you. Um, so it was funny, like when I reached out to you, for some reason, I thought you lived in England and I have no idea why I thought that. Admittedly, a lot of Britishisms make their way into my speaking and writing. So I okay. think people get that. Partially, it's Canadian because I was born, I'm Montreal born, Canadian raised. Uh -huh. um, I have my grandmother who spent a lot of her time living with us growing up because um, she's divided her time between India and Canada um, with Anglo Indian. And so English is there. And then also my parents are both, we're both educated in um, English schools, colonialism and all. So, <laughs> Got it. Okay. So I definitely have that, a bit of that patter that I came up with in my household. And then admittedly also astoundingly influenced by British cooking, cuisine and food writers. So I think it ekes its way in, but I'm in, um, I'm, actually in in a historic part of Canada that was like one of the early British settlements so maybe okay. um maybe I'm doing that but yes I'm I'm near Niagara <laughs> Falls I'm very oh my god the that's border. so cool yeah. how fun well it's um I think part of it was also that you've written for like the Guardian before and Maybe I first saw you there. I'm, by the way, like I'm distracted because I'm admiring behind Tara's head, if you're only listening <laughs> to this, is a wall of cookbooks that look incredible. And I have cookbook shelf envy. I can, hold on. I'm going to do a really awkward angle. And like, oh yeah. Oh going. my God. Look at all those books. <laughs> well, it's so funny because I have a bookshelf in my kitchen, which maybe you can see over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it's already like spilling out with cookbooks. And so I'm thinking about getting a second shelf. It's a tough thing because um, actually that always, we moved about two, three years ago now. And in the old house, I did have a cook, I had a cookbook shelf in the kitchen. And then there was one in the living room. And then there was one upstairs. And you wow. sort of knew what type of cooking I was doing because upstairs sort of ended up being the archive. It was the book mm. that I didn't use often. The living room were the ones that I was perusing. And then the kitchen tended to be the one that I was active, the ones I was actively using. Love that. And now, now I drive my husband crazy because this bookshelf is downstairs, which is very far from the kitchen. So I just have stacks of cookbooks throughout the house and he's gotten somewhat used to the dining table being covered. Oh my the God. The floor being, right yeah. Me, this kitchen table, I guess you can't see, but there's a kitchen table in there that is yep. literally spilling over with all of the cookbooks that I've been buying. So, and do you get in trouble for buying cookbooks? Like, does your husband say like you have too many? Cause mine certainly does. I I think there has been, especially when we have, whenever we have to move, because cookbooks are bloody heavy yes. and it's amazing how heavy uh, magazines get when you have a large amount of food magazines, they make a box heavy real fast. And yeah, uh, sure. so that's usually when he complains like, and says, do you really need this 20 year old Donahue magazine? And I say, yes, yes, I do need this 20 year old so you save Donahue magazines. Magazine. Yeah. I don't do that. But like, how do you even remember like what's in each magazine? Is it just um, to peruse? It later? depends on the magazine. Um, for a very long time, I did have multiple periodicals that I kept all the magazines for, which 
did when we moved, did that move a couple of years ago, I called the, um, the collection. And that's, again, very truly came by because I had a great aunt that had gourmets from the 1960s for years. So I was raised with this belief that it, a magazine was a book just like anything else and you held on to it. So I now only, I try to only keep uh, magazines that were really formative towards me or I keep a lot of the holiday editions because I think there's something wonderful about being able to pull out like all the Thanksgivings mm -hmm. and look and see how it's all evolved and then also get inspiration for the year. So that's the ones I now tend to keep though. It, and then the other ones that I do have larger collections tended to be ones that really did a lot and have almost like a sentimental value because I remember how exciting it was when I bought that magazine, mm -hmm. especially when it was magazines like the Donna Hayes, like the Jamie Oliver's, those that were expensive to get. Mm -hmm. um, delicious, olive, all these ones coming from the overseas that felt like a whole new way of looking at food. And in so many ways informed how I started in food, the type of food I was interested in, the type of storytelling. So they're as much a photo album to me as they are a magazine. So did some you, of those, uh, did you read I hold on to uh, Ruth Reichel's most recent book was called Save Me the Plums. And yes. that gave me such an appreciation because I, I, I think Gourmet Magazine was the first food magazine that I subscribed to. And it, it's really a loss, like just in the sense right now with whatever food magazines are still out there, it feels like there's not that in-depth writerly writing, except maybe for Whetstone, which is Stephen Satterfield's uh, yeah. magazine, which is pretty great. Um, but but when you listen to, or I listen to the audio book of Save Me the Plums and just hearing her talk about like working with David Foster Wallace on his famous lobster article and just these great writers writing about great subjects. And I feel like you don't really have that anymore. Absolutely. I, I go back at the Mujdara recipe that Francis Lamb did for Gourmet Magazine all those years ago, where uh -huh. it's, there's a whole paragraph about caramelizing onions and he walks away and returns to the onions and he's swearing about the onions as he works his way through it. And those are iconic pieces of literature beyond food. And mm -hmm. um, I felt like because I actually came to food through English and English literature and writing as my background. So these were the storytellers that in so Same, many ways, by were, the way, we have that in common. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you understand then that it was about voice and it was about narrative. And that's actually one of the reasons why when I started out in food that I knew I didn't want to end up in kitchens because as that was as much as I love that it, it's all that surrounds food that I also wanted to get into. And food writing is what allowed me to do that because it gave me context, place, history, um, all those bits. And, and exactly as you say, gourmet, I love that you can still kind of find the archives and get yourself in there. Those are, it was, it, it felt like it, it had a modernity to it, it had a depth to it, and it also elevated the reader because mm -hmm. it expected something of you and mm -hmm. it expected you to, you to do some legwork. And I think often um, in mainstream media, food can be seen as frivolous. Mm -hmm. And it can be seen as seen as a fluff piece, but when you actually look at it in the in the larger scope of how it fits into our lives, it is all of our lives. It mm -hmm. is all of it's a, a multidisciplinary study, and I love that a magazine like Gourmet treated it as such. And um, I miss that. Like I think Sever does some wonderful articles as well, and I think that they're, you're seeing depth with some more long form pieces coming back here and there. Um, love seeing Whetstone and yes. um, they, had a, they, they had that Diaspora Co. Um, e magazine that they did mm -hmm. recently that was just beautiful to see. So I have to ask before we get to your lunch therapy, as someone <laughs> who loves English <laughs> literature and cookbooks, what are your, I mean, what are some, and I'm not going to put the pressure on you and ask oh, you, good like, Lord. what are your yeah. favorite, but I guess, do you have any that you recommend that sort of hit that sweet spot oh. that, that, yeah, you love there's a, I have a whole section in the, the shelves. Um, like, of course, you go back to like MFK Fisher and mm -hmm. all of that. Um, but then I, one of the people that I think give you such an immediate sense of space and it's not place and it's absolutely not original for me to say is Nigel Slater. Mm -hmm. um, every Christmas, how many people read the Christmas Chronicles or actually there is an audio, there's a podcast that went along with um the Christmas Chronicles. And since you're mentioning listening to the audiobook, if you listen to that and you hear him talking about Christmas and place and the loss of his mother who um, did pass during the holidays, it's just, it sets the season for me every time. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually also why I love Nigella Lawson's earliest book. Mm -hmm. because Of course, she came from that journalism background. And because 
media is as it is and, and her looks and her personality sort of took over, people forget, I think, how brilliant a writer she is. I will always remember her talking about um, she quotes Aldous Huxley and talking about champagne being a green apple peeled with a steel knife. Mm. And she drops that in the middle of a conversation about something that she's cooking. And that was such a visceral um, description. And I'll never untie those two. That's from such her. a great description of champagne, too. I never Isn't thought about not? that, but it's it really clean is. And yeah. clean and yeah, exactly. And, and the fact that she pulls it out. So I, I love her early books for that. And her, um, even on her TV show, I feel like her use of language is so luscious and inviting and, and, and colorful. And, and you just the words that she uses to describe things are unlike any other person on TV. She speaks in song. It's the most mellifluous way to think of language and food and the mm -hmm. intersection of the two. And she just weaves such magic to it. Um, I'm trying to think because I have a whole, uh, of course, modern, you have to say like Molly Weisenberg. Oh, and of course. She, my old blogging was, friend. Yeah, exactly. She was actually the reason I started a blog. Oh, funny. Um, yeah. Way, way back in the day, um, because she did exact every all of that. And mm -hmm. I love that she does so much now, of course, with food writing workshops, because I think that she is one of the most like brilliant uh, contemporary food writers and really was at that crux mm -hmm. of that moment and captured really the talent that there was for food writing in an anthropological sense and that got missed when we started talking about it. And again, this is in no way slagging um, the modern version of the food blog, but there was a moment before it became about monetization mm -hmm. and before that it really was coming from a writerly perspective when photographs were this big on the screen and taken with janky point and shoot cameras and we mm -hmm. weren't about visual. They were really long essays. Oh yeah. And, and Molly just, excelled to such a degree um, with that, with the format. So I feel like she is the best of all of us who kind of came up in those early 2000s. Hey, I'm going to be offended by that, but thank you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny because yeah, Molly like, and I really started our blogs around the same time. And I once got trapped in Seattle during a, snow, a blizzard and I actually went to her house and she let me stay in her Aww. basement um, and cooked for me. It was pretty magical. Um, well, Tara, I think the time has come to ask you the famous question that really kicks off the podcast, which is what did you have for lunch today? I had a mishmash sort of Luxa for lunch today. I'm in the midst of a lot of holiday cookie development. This is August. I don't know when this is going to broadcast, but this is August. And oh, so we will uh, broadcast on Monday. So there you quickly. go yeah. on Monday. So yeah. a week ago, I was in the midst of doing a lot of um, holiday baking. Uh, development. And so freezer space is at like such a premium. So I was cleaning out the freezer and I found a that I had some Luxa from a favorite restaurant um, locally. And to make room for all of the baking that I'm doing, I pulled it out uh, yesterday, let it defrost. It had tofu puffs in it, but not much else in the broth. And I love Luxa. So I, added, I actually don't, I have to admit my, my lack of knowledge, but I don't know what Luxa is. It is a Malaysian um, and Indonesian soup. Okay. Got there it. are two forms of it. One is with a coconut base and one was with a tamarind base. Mine was with the coconut base. So it's like a golden yellow coconut soup. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a curry Luxa is the coconut soup golden one. That is what I had. And um, usually it's with noodles. And so I had, I cooked up some quick noodles that I had. So I had this coconutty, spicy curry broth, tofu puffs that were frozen in it, wow. um, added some noodles. I had some leftover roast um, squash. So I threw that in. Usually you have it with like all the bits and pieces that you put on pho. So um, bean sprouts, all of those wonderful things did not have any of those. Mm -hmm. So I grabbed some microgreens, which I did have threw those in. So they had like a little crunch and like must, they were um, baby mustard sprouts. Ooh, that sounds good. Um, yeah, I like the crunchy little spicy, put lime sauce on it. I had a little bit of cooked pork. So threw that in. It was all the bits and pieces basically out of the fridge. Um, then threw on tons of herbs because I have some in the garden. Um, fried shallots that I keep in the fridge and then hot sauce. Wow. So. Oh my God. I have to say, I've been doing this podcast for two, two and a half years, and that might've been the most enticing lunch description I've heard so oh, far. Oh, I'm thrilled considering <laughs> it was a freezer dive 
and all the bits and pieces left over in my fridge. I take that as a high compliment. Thank you. Well, yeah, of course. Well, I have to ask you. So first of all, as a fan of your work and your photography um, and the, you know, just the food that you make, like it sounds when you were describing this dish, I'd almost had like a visual, I had a visual sense of what it would look like as you were describing the squash and the pork and the the herbs on top. So, I mean, when you make a dish like this for yourself, um, are you thinking about how it looks, even if you're not taking a picture of it? Um, and I think it's, it's all kind of tied up into itself because, um, what I am looking for, and that's one of the reasons why things like Malaysian, Thai, Vietnamese cooking appeals to me so much is also why Indian and like Mexican Latin American food is because there's this wonderful interplay of texture mm -hmm. and temperature. And so it just inherently becomes beautiful because it has, I love bits and pieces. That's one of my favorite things. Uh -huh. so if I can have lots of garnishes and this is comes from like the, the Indian chats where you have like tamarind chutney and green chutney and you have yogurt and you have little crunchy bits. I want all the bits. Mm -hmm. So because of that, you just end up with lots of color and texture because I love when every bite's a little bit different. I love when I can kind of tailor uh, something to me, um, to each of the, the people that are eating. The other thing is it's lunch is, especially right now, one of the few times that I'm cooking kind of for myself, mm -hmm. just because I'm working from home. My husband is sometimes working from home, sometimes not. The kids are around. Um, usually we have very communal meals, but because our schedules, even though we're all in one house, aren't matching up as much. So I can actually do something that is absolutely selfish, completely for me. And if that's the case, then I want all those like hot, sour, salty, sweet, crunchy, fresh. And so I tend to go a little all out and I love having all those things on hand. That makes me feel, I, I can't meal plan, but if I have like lots of condiments in my fridge and lots of little things like that, then I feel like I'm well-prepared. So I love being able to kind of pull from that. And does your husband or do your kids ever wander in and catch you eating this and say, hey, I want one of those for me? <laughs> they do. Well, that's often it. My husband will say, I'll ask him, do you want me to make you lunch? And he'll say no. And then he'll pause and say, are you making yourself lunch? And if I say yes, then he'll say, I'm going to just make me lunch because I will see yours and I'll want it later. So uh, that's really funny. <laughs> well, it's interesting because my husband's in New York right now working and I've noticed in myself a difference in how I cook for myself and how I cook when he's here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, like last night for dinner, I just had like a few tomatoes left and some peaches and like plums. And I decided to make like a little salad with that with shallots and um, olive oil. Mm. And, and then I had like eggs in the refrigerator just because I just got back from a big trip. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll make an omelet. And it was a very casual dinner. And with Craig, like, I always feel like I have to make a little extra effort. Like, it, it, I mean, he, he'd probably be happy with that. But you know what I mean? Like, there's, just, mm -hmm. I do feel a sense of having an audience. And I'm curious for you, like, when do you notice a difference between cooking for yourself and then cooking for others? It's, I'm very, um, emotionally influenced when it comes to my eating. Mm -hmm. Yesterday's lunch, if you had asked me, was honestly a bunch. I had figs that were about to go a little bit too soft. So I was just splitting figs with flaky salt, pepper, um, and olive oil. And I was just eating those with um, pinching bits of arugula with them. Mm. So that wasn't even a salad. That was me standing over yeah. a container at the counter, but like a pinch of arugula, with that kind of stuffed in the middle, that was my weird lunch. That's what so, I do actually when he's not here too, is I eat at the kitchen counter and listen to yeah, NPR. Over and, the sink? Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that, that sounds delicious. Um, so it's so that's the one thing with me is that I it will be my mood. And so because of the fact that when you're cooking for a family of four, um, you have to be somewhat egalitarian and you're thinking about like who likes what and spice levels and all of those type of mm -hmm. things. And, and so the, the thing that I love about when I can have a moment to take pause and like cook for myself, sometimes it can be very simple, but there feels something very luxurious about mm -hmm. exactly making something the way you want it, which is actually why I got into food was because I was a greedy child mm -hmm. and I wanted, and, and I knew if I constantly asked for things to be made a certain way, I would be yelled at by my mother or grandmother but if I made it myself, I could have it exactly how I want it. Wow. So I think I still have moments of that when I cook for myself. 
Um, but luckily, I think because of what I do and because of how I was raised and then how we've raised our children, we've been fairly lucky in the fact that they are, they don't love everything. They have food opinions, which is valid and fine, but at the same time, they're fairly open to new things and Mm -hmm. they're fairly open to my whims when I decide I'm trying something completely new. So I I get what you mean though, because I also feel the, the idea, especially with kids is you have this set of like, what is a complete meal mm-hmm. for them? Like, do you, have I given them enough vegetables today? Did I see them eating fruit? Yes. <laughs> Am I, you know, have we had too much um, meat this week? I'm thinking about that, like larger parental stress balance. How old are your kids? They're 15 and 13. Oh, wow. Yeah. You look too young to have kids that are 15 <laughs> and 13. I'm sure you get that a lot. Um so 15, I feel like those are the ages though, where I feel like kids start to rebel a little and like want to do their own things. And I, I've always wondered, cause I don't have children, but I've always wondered if I had a kid and I was making all this delicious food with all these organic, beautiful ingredients that one day they would just start going to McDonald's and want to eat fast food every, like, do your kids ever like fight against your beautiful food and say they want to eat a greasy burger or uh... I love a greasy burger yes I love a greasy I have my husband who gets so mad at me because I love craft singles and I will proudly say I love mm-hmm. American cheese and he wants great you know English cheddar on his burger and I'm standing beside him going do you have craft singles because mm-hmm. I want craft singles on my burger so I think we've luckily taught them like everything in moderation. Um, Great. That's and good that parenting. If you, yeah. And if you have a love for it, that it's fine to, you know, but they also understand how food makes them feel, mm-hmm. which has been a really great thing because I sometimes felt like, was I some, especially I think I have this because I'm the children of people who came to this country, the child of a person who came to this country, is that you always feel this pressure again to participate in larger culture. Mm -hmm. And so when I wasn't giving my kids those foods that are that you see on commercials that you think are somehow inherently part of childhood, Mm -hmm. that I would be like, do you want a pop tart? Right. Like, right. do you want to have so they a pop fit in and not, not feel ex- like an outsider? Exactly. Or yeah. that they missed out on that cultural touchstone. Yeah. Because, like, later on, if someone's talking about Pop Tarts, you want them to know what it tasted like. So, and did you go so- through that yourself? Like, when you first got to it? When you, when, I mean, because you, you were born in Canada. I was born in Montreal. Yeah. In Montreal. I was born in Canada. But yeah. did you do, but because of your parents having immigrated, did, were you self conscious about that in your childhood? I, I, did and did not. My mother, um, my mom came here as a teen. So it's all, even though I'm technically the first born generation here, she was here for, she's been here longer than she was anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, she had lived around the world. And then also my father, his job also had him around the world because he was a ship's captain. So my wow, parents, that's so cool. Even, it was, it was great because they also came and there are two different types of Indians. So because of that, we had a very eclectic and broad view of all food being equal. And Mm -hmm. so my mom was astoundingly experimental in food. And I did have sugar cereal and lots of non what many people would associate with my upbringing. I did have those things. I think um, I don't know if I actually had as many moments, but I think because I realized how I was still a Canadian with that asterisk, even Mm -hmm. though that I always felt even if I didn't actually lack, you feel like you lacked because Mm -hmm. of being a visible minority, you are somehow always that marginalized. And you wonder if I could have somehow done more to be accepted, but only in my adulthood, I think that I realized that because of the color of my skin that I never would have at that time of growing up, I could have played hockey and done all the things. Mm -hmm. And I still would have always had that asterisk. And that's just the, the nature of the time that I grew up. And my kids, admittedly, they're mixed. Mm -hmm. And so they pass, and I hate that term, but they are somehow something else Mm -hmm. than specifically brown. And so I think that I have that compulsion because of what I, because as as you go through and you you become a parent and you're going through that, you're you're in the back of your head. And this is even for the the children that you parent in your life who may not be your children. Mm -hmm. um, You have in your head that idea of wanting to save them all the things Right. that you went through. And so I think you always are compiling it through your journeys that you've gone through and the trials that you've gone through. You thought, what would I have told a child or my younger self? And so mm-hmm. I think I had all these things kind of collected 
And mm -hmm. so I kind of push my, it goes like, hey, do you want a Pop-Tart? And it's lovely. It's great because they have had such exposure to food that they can eat a Pop-Tart. They understand it. They and then they're like, I don't really like a Pop-Tart. <laughs> and I kind of love that. Or they don't love, um, like I love, they love marshmallow fluff, but they don't love a Twinkie. And mm, that's interesting. Okay. You know, I, I'll have to <laughs> analyze them next. So Yeah. And so they, it's like little things like that. And so right. they, they have a taste for stuff absolutely like my kids love chips i they love a dorito they love a, a ruffled chip which so do i um That's but they great. also have an, they have an appreciation for both well i'm curious because on the other side of that is um teaching them about your your heritage and like you know your your parents and where they came from so how how much indian food i guess do you make at home and how important is it for you to, for your kids to to understand what they're eating and to take that on themselves as part of their identity well, that's such a fascinating thing. And that was something that I did not 100% know I was ready for. And I don't know if not ready for is the right word um, that I had anticipated because I somehow expected my children to be more obviously brown than they ended up. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the outward marker of you have a cultural expectation from the society at large. And so I always find it interesting when people immediately come to me for Indian food as mm -hmm. being my expertise. And I'm, I'm a great Indian cook, but there's probably literally a billion Indians that are better than me at it because mm -hmm. that's actually not where I focus my um, culinary journey because I came from a very strong family of Indian cooks and my way of setting myself apart mm -hmm. was actually going into baking. And then the cooking that I did mostly was actually Italian and French. And because that stopped me from ever comparing myself to my grandmother's curry or my dad's. That's curry so interesting. Because I've heard um, like stories of rebellion. You know, I mean, my rebellion was just to cook in general because it was not what my parents expected of me at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so it was kind of liberating just to go into a kitchen and start to cook. But I love this the specificity of your differentiation that that it was not about becoming a cook against your parents' wishes. It was like that they cook, but you were becoming a different kind of cook to become your own individual person. Exactly. It was my way of finding my sense of self. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I never, and so it's interesting when I had the, the, with the children is that they get to choose, they have a choice that I never had of how much they want to own both of their heritages. Mm -hmm. They are, um, my husband is Irish and English. And so them, they can choose when they want to be Indian. They can choose when they want to be Irish. They can choose that they're just Canadians. They get an anonymity that I was never afforded in my mm -hmm. life. And so it's really quite interesting to me because especially now, especially with their ages, the idea of their sense of self, mm -hmm. their idea of moving outside into the world, all of that is kind of coming to the forefront of when they decide to share and how much they decide to share and how much they decide to own of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that Indian food has always been just part of our family. And um, my husband does love Indian food. And so it's, and even just little things like a love of cilantro, mm -hmm. um, like we call it danya. And so danya is, makes its way into our tuna salad and yeah. will make its, its way into eggs. Um, when we're just making a scrambled egg, because that's how I grew up having eggs had danya in it and green chilies. So there's little ways that the Indian kind of ekes its way in yeah. without me. Well, it makes me wonder, it just makes me wonder, like if you had to represent yourself and your identity in a dish. Like, what would you make? Oh, that is a difficult one. My, because I would say it's, I don't consider myself, I, I consider myself Indian, of course, but I consider myself Canadian first. Oh yeah, I mean, you can make and, anything. You, know, you can make yeah, Italian no, no. food. Yeah. So no, that's it though. It's, it is that. No, I'm trying to think because that's, um, the Italian comes from my next door neighbors growing up because they were Calabrian and my was best friends with their daughter. So wow, I grew up lucky. eating like, yeah. very lucky so I grew she I grew up with Italian Easter breads and veal scallopini and Nutella and all of that as equally as I grew up with anything else um if there was one thing that I had to make that was representative of me uh it, it you know honestly it might end up being something like a soup like I had at lunch today yeah something that's that very is, you yeah that it's something that's all that that's pulling from a lot of um influences because it has aspects from all over actually you know what it, another one that would 100 be me is a breakfast sandwich mm. there you go okay i i love breakfast so much i love a breakfast sandwich and i want a breakfast sandwich that has something spicy in it like 
Parisa or a, a Panamanian friend of mine makes this amazing hot sauce that is mm -hmm. full of herbs and chilies. And it's not just hot. It's got like everything going on. I want, what kind like, of bread? Wait, what kind of bread would you use? I love, I actually love a great English muffin. Yeah. I, I love a great English muffin. I want it crispy at the edges. Okay. Um, I want it I, like kind of soft, but I, that's why I love it if you pan fry an, an English muffin. Mm. So it has like doughy softness, but then crisp. Um, I want an olive oil fried egg. I want a cheese like Manchego or like Comte or something from Jura and like the Greer family. Mm -hmm. So something with like a little punch. I want lots of greens in it. And then I want something creamy. I love myself an aioli or mayonnaise. And then maybe like a roasted tomato. Um, wow. And then, oh, and then some protein. Like I want a thick cut bacon. There has to be, besides that, I need a meat. So yes, that is, that's 100% me. That is like, I would say if it wasn't a soup, but even then it's all the same sort of thing. Like you've got something juicy with roasted tomatoes. You have something lush. Instead of being the coconut, you have cheese. You have the, again, the fat of mayonnaise. Mm -hmm. um, we have spice in there. We have something fresh. I love like a pile of like mustardy or um, like bitter greens. So I want all of those type of things. Yeah, so, okay, yeah, yeah. This is like yeah. painful because I haven't had lunch yet and I'm like yeah. dying to eat that now. Um, well, I wanted to ask you because, like, you know, back to your lunch. Because, uh, you know, the whole, whole premise of this is I'm trying to pull up. I, already, I feel like we've learned a lot about you. So this is going very well. <laughs> but one thing that occurred to me about your lunch and your life in general is it feels like you have a really interesting balance of work and then like pleasure. Like it feels like you've struck this really interesting balance of like going into your garden and getting the herbs. But at the same time, you're testing recipes for Christmas or for cookies and you have a very full freezer. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you personally like find that balance and how, how much of it is work for you and then how much of it is pleasure for you? I will admit, I feel like, um, sorry, I have something in my eye here. Um, for those who's watching the camera, <laughs> they're going to see me like happily poke myself. Um, yes. the, I think in the last year has been a tough one, of course, because that balance really skewed. Um, I had the luxury of when my kids were in school and in active school, those were my working hours to do my job. So the kids would go off to school. I had the amazing time of those hours in my day. And I had the house to myself, the kitchen to myself. Um, you, sometimes my husband had the, the ability to come home from work and usually he would come and pick out. And it's hilarious that he'd walk in and say like, is this for eating? Cause he knew the <laughs> difference between testing or eating or photographing. And that was his lunch. And then I, so I had that time. And so there it worked out really well because um, I had like a block of time every day and I knew that I cleaned up by a certain amount mm -hmm. and then I could kind of be the mom. Well, just um, to ask for a second though, cause I've, I'm actually really curious about this cause I've been working on a cookbook and I have a very hard time making food just for the cookbook. That is not also the food that we're going to eat for dinner. Like it's hard for me to like make a dish and then be like, this is just for work. And then like later make a different dish. But I was, yeah. I was actually having lunch with Deb Perelman from Smitten Kitchen. And she was saying that she really keeps those separate. Like she thinks about work food and then she gives it away to neighbors and stuff. And then she has a separate dinner most of the time. And so, um, so when you're talking about this, like when your husband asks you, can I eat this? It's, is, is there food that just is for work and then separate food for your meals? Deb is a machine is if she's able to do that with, yeah. especially with two kids and at her, at their age. Um, yeah, because is, when I did yeah. the, when I did the cookbook, just, um, I was shooting and I was developing and all that in the house mm -hmm. and I did it and I never really had shoot days. It basically was that I shot and did it all in real time. So you see the change of light. You, I rarely did I do multiple dishes in a day. I did sort of every dish had its day. Mm -hmm. Um, so it often, and I also did the, like, I'm quick and dirty when it comes to my photography that I take a shot usually in about five, 10 minutes and then someone's eating the plate. So, <laughs> um, especially when I had really little ones, um, that was how it was very much like I did do the, this I'm cooking this for the book mm -hmm. and it will be dinner tonight. And that was actually, that was, it was just the only way that I could personally, um, like handle all of it. And it also helped me because I felt like in some ways for me, and this is, I think just the way that um, things were intertwined in my own brain was because the book and because the work so much is in the setting of a home kitchen. And it was specifically about 10 years of cooking in my life that 
keeping that connection made the most sense to me when it came to figuring out like, how does this work in a real life scenario? Mm -hmm. So it was feeding it for the kid, like giving it to the children. Um, so I think that this last year that's, I've kind of actually gone back to where I was with the book, which is now six years ago and with the kids being small and in the house, because now, especially like right now, my kids have been eating so many holiday cookies. Like there is a 9 a.m. cookie. There's a 10 a.m. cookie happening. One wow. of my kids went went on a hike with friends yesterday and his backpack was filled with granola bars and then like three different types of holiday cookies because I've got them on the counter. Um, and is this for an article that you're writing? Or it for, is. Okay. It's for a few different. I'm, I'm do, I just happen to be doing some cookie development for a couple of publications for their holiday. Edition. And I have to so, ask you just professionally speaking, cause like I'm working on this too. Like, so you test a cookie, you take a bite and then are you like a perfectionist? Like, will you be like, Oh, this, this is not what I want. I mean, how many times will you make it over and over again? Or do, are you pretty happy pretty much out of the gate? Um, certain things I can often bang on quickly so mm -hmm. that's certain things I'll say because I have just like a general like I get I think that my brain works in a way that I can sort of taste it as I'm yes as I'm working on it however that said it I think I test as many times as the recipe really needs like the one of the cookies I was working on it was delicious and it had the flavor profile but it was texturally not exactly like I really wanted this contrast of it's a filled sandwich cookie and I wanted the contrast mm -hmm. and so I knew that I wanted slightly more snap in the cookie that I wanted it to be that the filling was slightly firmer uh, so that when you bit down you got this almost oreo like you know wonderful like cleaving bite mm -hmm. to it and I yeah. wanted that bite and so then it was okay we're going to test this and we tested like by we I mean myself <laughs> um, I went through testing a few different variations to try to get that cookie a little snappier I wanted that filling set a little firmer um but usually I'm in a good place when I have my my first go at it I'm usually in a good place and then it's the decision of how much do I want to finesse this and and where do I go luckily knock on wood and watch me totally jinx myself um I don't think in recent times I've had the the first go where it's like an utter fail yet mm -hmm. recently. That's well, totally I, I've been changed tomorrow. <laughs> well, for, for me too, it's like, it's also just expensive to keep buying these ingredients, especially like I was testing a recipe yesterday for that, for halibut and, you know, all, and, and all these mussels and things. And it's like, Oh my God, how many times can I, I mean, cause originally it was for four people. So it's like, well, I have to buy four pieces of halibut. So it's just like the practical part of it too. Is, is I usually scale. Yeah, I, that's another thing. Yeah, that you, of course. So that that's the that I'll try to. Um, that's one of the reasons why, of course, um, weight is such a godsend when it comes mm -hmm. to baking recipes. Is that you can scale often scale the recipe. Things with it are yeasted, of course, kind of are a little bit finickier, mm -hmm. but you can fiddle. And so usually I'll do like half batches or quarter batches when I'm getting the basis of something down, and mm -hmm. then I will scale it up to my final recipe and then test it a few times in the the fully scaled version of it. But another recipe I was working on for this, I literally, I took it down. It's a, the recipe I did in a quarter. And because I was trying a few very um, variables in it. So I kept doing quarter recipes with mm. the variables, so we could test all, taste them all together. And then now that I think I'm set, I will do the full recipe. Oh, that's a good testing. way to do it. Wow. Okay. This is more like a coaching session for me rather than I, your absolutely. lunch therapy. But back to you. The other thing <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you about, which we haven't gotten into yet, is photography and where that started for you and how you got to this place where you can take professional pictures of your own food for your cookbooks, which is very enviable. I'm sure to so many food writers. That was honestly a, a, a just a response truthfully to the industry changing. I have a little bit of a photography and visual background just because of how I came up through writing and journalism that I worked for newspapers and things like that. So I had a great r rapport with frequently with our photography department. Um, and that was my way of honestly getting them to work on my photographs and layouts more was uh -huh. that if I could take little jobs off of them, they could then work on my work, um, which is total. The, and my brother actually is a fantastic photographer. And so I grew up with his eye around me. So I've had an appreciation for the visual um, and I never expected it. If you, um, my old site isn't up anymore, but my original were those like drag a lamp over from the living room over to the kitchen Canon power shot little photograph. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, of course. And then, uh, cause that was 2005. And then by like, I think it was like 2007, you had people like Matt Armendariz, like 
just blasting onto the scene with like magazine where they photographed right and you know and green kitchen stories and sprouted kitchen and oh my god so my food many- blog started with like flash pictures oh from, like a yeah. tiny little camera uh-huh. I mean but mine was amateur gourmet so that was easy because it was just like I'm an amateur I don't know what I'm doing but even then I still had to get an SLR and learn exactly and learn from people but so but and- you surpassed most people I feel like oh that that is very generous um it was really and it was also as, as you remember because we had things like with the aggregate sites like food Gawker had moved it to a visual medium that whereas I always felt that my strength was in my words, you suddenly had, that was the way that people were finding out what was new on blogs Uh, was mm -hmm. suddenly visuals. And then of course the um, invention of Instagram turned blogs completely visual um, where you were, you know, telling people to click through for recipe, but it was the photograph that really kind of went there. Um, I never expected to photograph my book. I honestly thought that someone else would do it because I love collaboration with people that are more talented than I am because mm-hmm. I think it, it raises everyone up. That was a push from my publisher to do so. And um, I'm absolutely honored by the fact that people took it and look at it as a professionally photographer photographing because it was really and truly learning on the job through the years of the blog. And I do everything completely ass backwards and I shoot really quick and dirty. <laughs> and, um, and that's, and I just kind of, I, ha- I think I just, I, I, I think that everything moved so quickly in the industry that I never had a chance to really question whether or not I should be doing something. And because of that, it taught you this idea of just kind of going forth and being bold because there's also like a democratization of all of it in a Mm -hmm. wonderful way that 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 gave you the freedom to experiment and figure it out and um, learn and grow. So do you enjoy photography? I do enjoy photography. I, it's something that I never set out for and I do enjoy it. I bet at the same time, if you ask me what's at my heart of it, it's like, I just like making really tasty food. Right. But it seems to me that that, there's a, but I feel, I feel like part of what makes your work work so well is there really seems to be harmony between the language and then the visuals sort of seem to have a style to them that matches the language, which I think is really fascinating. That's actually what that's really uh, it's fascinating to me that you picked up on that Um, (laughs) because that was something that actually is one of the reasons why I never had shoot days for the book. And I did have an office, like by say office, I mean like a den in my house, not like an official office um, that was upstairs. And when I did the book, I moved it all to our dining table, Mm -hmm. much to the chagrin, I'm sure of my family, because I took over our dining room Mm -hmm. um, because it was something about this proximity, this idea that I was writing up here um, and then having to move to the kitchen and then going back Mm -hmm. that it disconnected. And so I frequently never, um, even when I write articles now, I never finish my copy until I've seen the photography for it. If I'm doing the photography, Mm -hmm. I can't, because I feel like somehow it is the mood of one affects the other. Mm -hmm. And so that I always love when I get to have like a package that way. So I literally moved everything from my dining table. There was photographs all over our walls in the, um, in the dining room of all the photographs I'd taken. And it felt like there was like a symbiotic relationship between the kitchen and the computer and Mm -hmm. the kitchen and the camera that way, because there was an immediacy that I would literally, you know, make the dish, photograph the dish, have the dish probably on the dining table and then have my computer there and be writing the recipe, working on the recipe, like fiddling the head note, thinking about mood, thinking about how it felt in that moment, mm-hmm. how the light was, the the what was evoked by how the visuals ended up. If something ended up being really bright and cherry or um, something ended up being a little bit moody or darker. And it, that was where I felt like it it sang that making sure that I was capturing that same song on the paper. So well, it's interesting it you talked about um, Molly, Weis- Wei- Molly Weisenberg earlier because I feel like that's something that she really did on her blog was like these like Polaroids that sort of were kind of you know a little gra- not grainy but they had a lot of personality to them that seemed to match the the tone of the text and what she was writing too. Absolutely there's like a textural quality to it and there was something like hazy and wonderful and romantic about her photography and it felt like there was a specific relationship between the visual and the words there. And so mm-hmm. that is very much like I, if I was going to do it all, um, which I ended up doing with the book, I felt like I had to do it all as it works for me, which is like the idea of what, of doing a shoot day, which 
of course, if you're a professional, that's how you do it. And you're doing like eight to 10 recipes in a day. Mm -hmm. I never was able to do that because it felt like I was shifting gears Mm -hmm. and that I was somehow divorcing one from the other. And when you're only focused on the one that that makes absolute sense. But when you were trying to do both, I just could not make that bridge and recreate it. So to me, it was, um, I remember like timing it and it's like you have three days, basically, if you're doing 300, if you're doing 100 recipes in a year, yeah, three days, basically, that you're doing a recipe. So everyone kind of got their three their day. Um, and that was how I, I, I kind of mentally worked my way through it. But it kept me in kind of a sense of place. And it mm-hmm. gave me a sense of the, the recipe and really trying to capture it. So I love that you picked up on that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because I, I interviewed Dory Greenspan once. And she said the, the biggest lesson she learned after writing her first cookbook was to write the head notes immediately after making the dish that she had. A, she she would forget sometimes to do that. And then when she had to go back and write them that she would completely forget like what it felt like, what it tasted like. So it seems like what your process makes a lot of sense, even just in terms of like for anyone writing a cookbook or anything. And, and There's that visceral. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, so Seven Spoons was the cookbook and are you, is there another book? Are you working on another, another book right now? My publisher would like me to say, yes, I'm working on another book. Uh, okay. <laughs> They've been Got bugging it. me for a while to do uh, another book. Um, there's a whole long story with that. Um, oh, really? I, I, yeah. <laughs> is it a good story? Do you want to share it? There's well, there, there is like a longer therapy session for mm. that, that, um, there's good in there. The, the first book was wonderful and I loved it. And it was, I love the totality of, of a project like that, that I'm, that it's literally every page. And the fact that you have a sustained conversation with your readers, the thing that you, you get from doing freelance as I do. And then also with a blog is that you never know when someone's entering your work, mm-hmm. they may have read you for years, or this is the first time they've seen you. But with a book, you can actually bounce around. You feel like you have this like set thing that mm-hmm. in and of itself is a created whole. Right. And um, I adore that. Um, and so with the book, I, I have admittedly, I have many pages of proposals and recipe lists and all of that. The biggest thing also though, and this is not, this is something I've touched upon elsewhere, but I've never, I don't think ever said specifically was a reason why I've held off was one of the things I really found difficult was from a personal perspective was how much systemic racism I dealt with, with the first book coming out mm. and never cruel, met intentionally, cruelly. But um, hearkening back to that idea of Canadian with an asterisk was um, not so much, not at all the PR that I worked with, but a lot of the PR that I worked with suddenly wanted to frame my story as an immigrant story. Mm. And my book is not about specifically Indian food. It's not even technically about my like family story, but people were asking me questions like the circumstances with which my parents came um, to the country. And I was thinking other people who are writing books that have nothing that are talking about contemporary cuisine mm-hmm. aren't being asked these questions. And I haven't lived with my parents for like decades at this point. Mm-hmm. Why? And it some, and that was very much, they wanted this very specific narrative that had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with the scope of my work, had nothing to do with the content of my mind or this story mm-hmm. or this book. And being constantly pushed in that made me realize um, in so many ways how at that point in media and also not feeling wholly supported by it by the industry was that they didn't want to see me any other way yet. Mm-hmm. And that was an astound, it was belittling, it was difficult, it was, I don't even know if I have the full words for it, but when you've spent that, when I had felt like I had built a career, because the book came out basically on the 10th anniversary of the book, of the blog starting. Mm-hmm. The book came out on April 21st, 2015. My blog started May 1st of 2005. So almost 10 years to the day that I felt like I I'd had this career. And then you're literally asking me questions about things that happened before I was born. Mm-hmm. And also making assumptions and presumptions about my parents and their education, their background, all of this. Why did I suddenly feel like, in a national media interview that I had to um, like explain my parents mm-hmm. when it has nothing to do with what my book was about. And this um, was, the, this me- was the PR team. This was the PR people that you hired to do or that came from the um, publisher. 
some of it was from the publisher and then it, some of it was also from the um from the media outlets that decided to pick up the story Got um it. Okay. that decided to wanted that the interview questions that i was um that i was getting from reporters um i had someone i remember say to me i was talking i mentioned my parents offhandedly and then they said something like well you're i'm surprised your parents don't sound like village people really and, said that. wow um, i had this moment where I, yes, and I was taken aback and I had to actually like pause and I said, can I say this off record? And the person said, well, um, you don't want to say stuff off record that puts me in an uncomfortable place. And I said, no, 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 this is for your benefit. And I'm telling you right now, the questions you're asking me, you're asking me because I'm brown. You would not ask these questions to me, to another first generation person that's come here because my work has nothing to do with this. You're, you want an immigrant story because of what I look like. Mm. And the person was kindly apologetic, but that was the type of thing that I was hitting up against. Um, and so admittedly, it made me not want to do a second book right away. Wow. That, I did not expect that answer. And it is interesting because like <laughs> I encountered your book before I encountered you uh, and because I've seen, seen it and it's beautiful. And, so it's, and I... And it's funny because I like like what you're saying is like it would never have raised the issues or questions of where your parents are from. It's not it's not part of that book at all. So yeah, that does sound really frustrating. We had some technical difficulties here. The screen froze, but then we got things working again. So that explains the jump in the conversation. Here we go. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, let's just do the audio because we're almost out of time. This really flew by. Um, <laughs> so maybe you didn't hear what I was saying about your cookbook though. When I first encountered your cookbook, that it, it, it didn't raise those questions for me at all. So I do think that's really interesting that you felt like people were looking at your color as opposed to your work, which would be really frustrating. Well, that's, um, that all kind of came to a culmination with the article that I wrote for Epicurious last year. And I have you back. I can see you again. Oh, great. Um, great. And that was the idea that said um, the color of the, the idea that um, the color of my skin is sometimes misassociated with the scope of my talent. And that is, it's, it, it's an unfortunate thing when um, something, when you are a visible minority, when there's, and, and that can be across the board, um, as soon as there's something that can be run with and to put you into a box and people mm -hmm. think that they can understand your story because of it, that you become an attribute rather than becoming being yourself. So you could be, and so it, it felt like this shorthand, like, oh, we see her, this is our angle. Yeah. And rather than taking the time of actually figuring, finding out what my story was, because actually mm -hmm. part of the idea of the book um, and so much of the work I do, I think is because the idea of multiculturalism is how so many of us are eating these days. Like mm -hmm. I, can, I have neighbors that are, um, you know, that they are German and they're cooking Ethiopian food. And that, and it's no longer about our cultural heritage. It's about what is the new contemporary and what is our new repertoire of home cooking. Mm -hmm. And that's real. And I don't think that has anything to do with the specificity really of my experience that has much more to do with the idea of being, you know, new world, if you will, right. in any form, because that's happening across the United States. That's happening across Canada in households of every shade and color. And so the idea that it was about me and in this very micro way takes away from I think like the macro work that there is of how all of us are coming no one none of us are cooking like our parents anymore right and so what are like what are our new classics and what are the things that we're excited about and it was much more about the egalitarian view of food than it was anything about like that I had anything to do with my background and maybe that's a book that I one day right and i'm and i have no problem with that idea but that wasn't the book that i wrote and it mm -hmm. wasn't the book and it wasn't the work that i do and um and when you just keep butting up when people only want that one part of you and i love my heritage and i love the color of my skin but truthfully that has that was not a choice i ever made mm -hmm. and so instead when why not also ask me about the the things that that i have chosen to pursue the wisdom that i have taken up that these are all it, it's as as this color of my skin is as much as saying that you only can talk about something because your hair is brown or your eyes are blue yeah well it circles back to the beginning of this conversation when we were talking about growing up and you wanting not to cook Indian food because you wanted to cook your own food for yourself and so 
it feels like this wasn't an, an actually really important part of your identity that you did differentiate and you did have this whole other thing and that your publisher or the PR people or the media wasn't seeing this thing that was that was the most important thing to you, which was what you created for yourself. And so I totally get that. I think we that's the the thing that I um you know that I, I don't think I always realized and um something that I if ever there's something that I hope to pass on to my children, it is the, or even just live in myself is the understanding the power of our active choices mm -hmm. and that, that we can do things with determination and intention. And it is the idea of like claiming your chosen family or living your life the way that you want to, or it is the idea of taking risks and that, that we have, we build so much of who we are and we build so much of our reality. We build the life we want to live. Yeah. That, that we have so much more active power than I think, I don't know if it's society that tells us, culture tells us, or even that sometimes because of our own ideas of self-esteem and confidence that we realize how much we have in ourselves for mm -hmm. it. And so when you feel like you've gone out into the world making active choices and living in a proactive way, when it is very responsive that it feels like none of that matters because all that matters is how the world sees you mm -hmm. can absolutely take the um you know all the foundations out from under your feet yeah i and totally so get that it's like it's like basically like you telling the world who you are and the world telling you back this is what we what we want you to be versus like exactly. accepting you on your own terms which has a lot of resonance right now especially like for me like in the gay community or you know especially what's happening right now with trans people wanting to be seen for their gender that they always had but the world a lot of the world denying them that so there's I think this is very resonant for a lot of people right now so um Tara I feel like we covered a lot of ground but we're not done yet because every <laughs> okay. podcast ends we start with what did you have for lunch but we end with what are you having for dinner tonight well this this shows you this work-life balance it's one of the reasons why I'm wearing a dress and I have makeup on my face is because I'm hosting a virtual event in Ooh. about two hours wow um I'm hosting a virtual dinner and this is something I've done a lot in the last year. So um, people around Toronto area will be getting dinner boxes from a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then I pop on with the chef and the sommelier and we do a little cocktail hour where we talk them through the menu and we talk about the wines and we have a little chit chat. They're able to um, ask questions. So I have a restaurant dinner tonight being delivered to my house. Um, wow. So I am having um I know it's a farm, it's a farm dinner inspired dinner. I have to think of the menu now in my brain. Um, I know that we have, we do have some scallops and things like that that are coming from the coast, but we have like a really fantastic Angus um, tenderloin that is going to be the main course that we have. They've done like, they, he calls it a cabbage taco, but it's not a taco. It's um, Savoy cabbage that the beautiful leaves have been saved. The inside has been cooked down with lots of onions and then all the beef fat trimmings. Mm. So it's like all the sticky lush. And then that gets tucked into this little cabbage taco. And we're going to have the tenderloin on top of that. Wow. Um, lots of farm stand vegetables. The uh, dessert has fennel and chocolate and puffed wheat berries. Um, it should be a good one. Well, this raises another question for me, which is, <laughs> where do you get your energy from? Cause I mean, you just did this whole interview with me and now you're going to do a whole virtual dinner and you've been testing recipes. So, I mean, have you always been this energetic and always had this much stamina to do things? Um, I think, I think it's the freelancer mindset. You get it done. Yeah, no, it's impressive. I mean, do, do you, do you usually have a lot going on in the day like when you're just going this your has day been a life. busy this is this is I feel like with the world kind of reopening up everything opened mm -hmm. up where suddenly everyone is looking like knocking on doors and asking you to do things and mm -hmm. um again you have that thing with work that when you are self-employed that when people ask you say yes um I do often have a lot going on I will admit that um it's tough right now because of the the kids being home and on um, summer vacation that I don't want to feel like I'm missing it mm -hmm. um, and being busy is, is a tough thing for that but I I feel like in many ways that I'm, I'm hoping it's what keeps me sharp and also what the more that you can experience I feel like it just gives back to me in so many ways like I it's such a treat for me to sit down with you because it absolutely put me in a different mindset and a mind space of 
just talking about things that I don't always think about. Mm-hmm. And then this evening, um, it's Chef Adam Walsh is doing the dinner, and I know that he can cook circles around me. So <laughs> I will absolutely feel, you know, lit up with inspiration coming out of that meal. And what a treat it is to be able to enjoy that food. And it's actually really lovely because um, I'm going to have that conversation and then my husband is going to open the wine and I will go upstairs and have like a really great dinner with the kids and my husband. So, oh, wow. Do they, do they of... all get the same meal? Is it all? Yes. Oh, nice. Um, so usually I have the, con- we've done, we've been doing these um, basically since last, uh, I think it was October maybe was the, the first time I did them, but we've done them with restaurants all over Toronto. And then, um, so it feels like a little like Christmas because we get this box that has wine and then all the courses are packaged wow. in and it's a little bit more, I won't say meal kit, but it's a little bit more interactive than takeout. So you will be like rewarming a few things. You get to plate things. They'll give you edible flowers and all those chefy little bits. Like I know we have crispy Yuba mm-hmm. skins that have been actually um, julienne really fine and they're going to go on top of a dish. So you get to do a little like fussy plating and um, like an emulsion goes on another plate. So after I have the conversation, I'll go upstairs. Um, Sean will have the the wine open and then we sort of have like a little dinner party kind of in the kitchen with the kids around the counter where I'm following the instructions and putting it all on plates and they get to feel fancy and it <laughs> ends up being kind of like a bit of a night out even though we're at home. Well, I'm going to give you my address when we hang up and I hope you can send me <laughs> one of these boxes so I can attend this dinner party. Well, Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to do this episode of Lunch Therapy. It was really interesting and I learned a lot and I hope you got something out of it too. This has been wonderful. I feel like we should like schedule these periodically so <laughs> yeah. I can like take stock. Uh, well, good luck with everything. I can't wait to read your Christmas cookie article and um, I'll be watching for whatever you're going to do next. Well, maybe this will be the kick in the butt to to really get working on book two. I do think the world has blessedly opened up um, and and it is a different place. And I'm kind of excited about that. So the fact that people are interested in another book from me is maybe the fire that I need to do it. Yeah, do it. Well, I hope this, and I hope you dedicate it to me because I was the one who got you. All right. Awesome. Well, (laughs) have a great time tonight and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Adam. Bye. Have a great day.